I think I've said this before, I, I didn't used to have my cell phone on me during worship gatherings, which I liked with uh, some of us being online and COVID, that has changed, but excuse my distraction, I got to talk to my brothers about sending me hockey texts in the middle of prayer time. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 5. We began uh, a number of weeks ago uh, our study of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, and we are going to continue that today looking at verses 1 to 10 in Matthew 5. So I have generally had a fairly good sense of direction I've, um, I've, I've enjoyed knowing where I'm going and how to find my way around. In high school, I drove delivery back in southern Ontario for a florist shop, and I, I knew my city like the back of my hand, and, and I, I, I had a, a sense of direction, and, and I, I liked that. I, I, I had maybe a bit of a sense of pride, like I know my way around, and I can figure out which way is which. In 1991, I moved to Abbotsford, British Columbia. I ended up enrolling at Columbia Bible College. And uh, some of you maybe know Abbotsford a little bit, but uh, Abbotsford's a fairly big city. Uh, but there's two main roads. One is Clearbrook Road. CBC is situated on Clearbrook Road. And the other is South Fraser Way. Those are the two main drags in this, this growing large city. It's not a town with just two streets. But those are the streets. And anyways, I, I don't know how I, I uh, figured this out, but I got there and, and uh, CBC's on Clearbrook Road, which ran east and west, and South Fraserway was the main north-south route, and, and uh, I, I knew that, I learned that, I, I knew my way around, I got to know the city. I lived there for my four years at CBC. I, I went away for summers to Kelowna to, to do construction, but I came back and I got hired at a church in Abbotsford, so I continued to live there. I met Chrislene while I was there. I got married to her, went to Vancouver for a year of graduate studies, but then was back in Abbotsford. So Abbotsford was home for like 10 years. I lived there. I knew my way around. I, I knew these two main roads and direction. I had a sense of everything. And uh, married Chrislene. We moved here, and we continue to go back regularly because we have family there. Her mom is there. My, I have my dad and his wife and brothers there, and so... Abbotsford remains a place that we're connected with. I don't know exactly when this was. It's been a couple or three years at least, but somehow in the course of being there or talking about Abbotsford uh, in Chrislene's presence, I mentioned something about Clearbrook Road being uh, east and west and South Fraserway being north and south. And she said, no, it's not. And I was like, what? what? She said, Clearbrook Road is north and south. South Fraser Way runs east and west. You go off South Fraser Way, you go to Vancouver. And, and, and I was like, what? And it began to click that for years, somehow, I don't know how I did this. I don't know where I picked this up, but, but I had just, I had totally thought east, west, north, south. And I was completely off. Completely wrong, my, my thinking. And even now, though I know that's true, it's a hard change. It's just for so long I thought in a particular way. And even though I know that I was wrong, it just, it's a hard change to make mentally. This morning, we're going to look at the Beatitudes with which the Sermon on the Mount begins. And, and Jesus here will make eight statements 
that radically challenge what we as human beings have quite naturally come to believe is true. Jesus says some things that will strike us as being wrong. What? Jesus is going to say these things and what really? It's 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 going to show us that the way we have learned to think is skewed. It's off. It's wrong. And he wants to correct that. He wants to show us what is true. Jesus is going to say, blessed are those who mourn. If you're crying, if you're mourning, you're blessed. Really? How, Jesus? Jesus is going to say to us that the meek inherit the earth. Not the strong, not the powerful, the meek. Really? Jesus is going to say that you're blessed when you're persecuted. If you're persecuted, you're blessed. Pardon? Jesus is going to say some, some hard things, some things that we're going to have a hard time. Go, really? Jesus, in these opening verses, challenges the way that we as human beings naturally think. And, and And he is going to want to change our understanding. He he wants us to understand what is actually true. His words will surprise us. They will jar us. They will expose to us the fact that our thinking is not naturally in sync with what Jesus thinks. It's not in sync with what is true, according to Jesus. We find Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. If you've been with us, we've walked through a couple of weeks already, laying some of the foundational stuff, getting our bearings on the Sermon on the Mount, how it fits and works in Matthew's Gospel, and uh, an overview last week of the Sermon as a whole. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 to 7. It is one of five large blocks of Jesus' teaching that is included in Matthew. It's the first one. And uh, this is the largest block of Jesus' teaching that we have in the New Testament. Uh, we find that in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus, uh, John the Baptist is arrested, and Jesus steps out of the shadows and onto the scene, and his earthly ministry begins. He goes into Galilee, and in doing so, uh, Matthew tells us he fulfills a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah from centuries earlier that the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus' coming is a great light shining in the darkness. And then Jesus goes about Galilee proclaiming good news, calling people to repent, that is, turn to God and believe the good news. He begins to announce that God's kingdom, that the kingdom of heaven is invading this world, this this place, our lives. Believe the good news. The kingdom of God is here. He preaches the good news, that God is setting things right, that God is invading this world, and he demonstrates the power of God present by healing people who are sick and diseased and suffering and setting those who are possessed by demons free. He is restoring things, setting things right. A quick note before I read our text to us, to you this morning. I mean, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10. The Beatitudes begin in verse 3, so verses 1 and 2 lay a little bit of foundation. Now, if you look ahead, if you have your Bibles, 
And I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. I know some of you look at a screen maybe, but even that's better. Just, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. But verses 11 and 12, some people say, oh, that's a ninth beatitude. I'm going to contend that that's actually an explanation or a working out of the final beatitude. That there are eight, that they end in verse 10. That's my contention. So we'll look at verses 11 and 12 another day and not this morning. We're going to focus our attention on the eight Beatitudes, beginning of verse 3 through to verse 10, along with the first two verses that introduce it. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read Matthew 5, 1 to 10. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Today, we are not going to look at any of these Beatitudes in tremendous detail. Rather, this morning, I want to introduce us to these eight Beatitudes, these, two, these eight blessed are statements of Jesus. In the coming eight weeks, we will walk through each one individually, diving deeply, trying to understand what all Jesus is saying. Today will be more of an overview of the eight. And to that end, I want to do five things with you in the time we have remaining. First, I want to remind you of the vital context of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount that we have explored the past weeks. I want to remind you of that. Second, I want to highlight a couple structural things, a couple things we recognize in how the Beatitudes are formed. Third, I want to consider these virtues, these qualities, these characteristics that Jesus here identifies. Fourth, I want to reflect with you on the meaning of the word blessed. What is Jesus pronouncing when he says blessed are? And fifth, I want to speak to our ability or perhaps better put, our inability to produce these qualities, these virtues, by our own efforts. So first, the context of this sermon. If you were here last week, you'll remember that I began saying, we have to ask the big question, what is this? What, what exactly is the Sermon on the Mount? How are we to approach it? How are we to understand it? Throughout the years of church history, there have been many different approaches. I'm not going to go through all of those, but I want to quickly touch on some of them. Remember, some people believe it's an ethic for a future, uh, a future time, that it's not relevant for us, that this was for uh, another time. Some believed it was an ethic for an interim time. That is, Jesus, who didn't know the day or the hour, he says that only the Father knows, thought that his return would be soon, and so this was an ethic for the interim time. Some people see this as a means to achieve social change. That is, if we just get our act together and do this, we can, uh, we can bring in God's kingdom by our own efforts. Some thought that this was an ethic for a specific location, first century Palestine. Not really relevant for the church today. Many, probably, probably the majority position, believe that the Sermon on the Mount is kind of for uh, elite Christians. You know, people who you know, are, are maybe monks and nuns and and people who are engaged in, in church ministry, 
This is for really special disciples, but not for general people, ordinary people. Others believe this is simply an ethic that shows us that we can't achieve what God calls us to. It's a mirror that shows us our desperate need for the cross. I contended last week that rather than any of those approaches, though there is something to that last one, it certainly shows us our need for the cross. But this is, in fact, the ethic, an ethic for the inbreaking kingdom. Jesus here is painting a picture for us of what our lives look like when the gospel takes root. When God's kingdom breaks in and we repent and we believe, God begins to change us and transform us. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we will see what that transformed character looks like, what that transformed conduct looks like, what transformed ambitions look like. We see a picture of who we are becoming through the gospel, through God's work through all that, that is entailed in the inbreaking of God's kingdom. This is ethics of the inbreaking kingdom. It, it describes what life looks like, hear this, in a broken world when his kingdom of wholeness breaks in and takes hold of our lives. All, Oswald Chambers puts it this way, the Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his way with us. When we repent and we believe the good news that in Jesus, a light is shining in the darkness. That in Jesus, God is setting things right. That in Jesus, we are brought into relationship with it. In Jesus, we find forgiveness and grace. In Jesus, we are clothed with his righteousness. In Jesus, we are adopted as daughters and sons of the king who is invading this world. When we believe the good news, Jesus begins to transform us. And this is what we grow towards now, if we ever forget the gospel context, before the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 4, if you were with us two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was sick for a week, Jesus begins to preach the good news of the kingdom. Believe the good news. And, and it's so important to understand, Jesus didn't come preaching the good news, saying, hey, the kingdom of God's here, believe the good news, now pull up your spiritual socks, get your act together. That's not good news. He says, good news that in his coming, God's kingdom is invading. In his coming, God is at work. Repent and believe the good news. When we believe, the gospel takes root in our lives and begins to shape us, transform our character, our conduct, our ambitions, our lives. We need to hold on to that always, always throughout this sermon. Because if we ever lose our grip on the gospel, the Sermon on the Mount will be either frustrating idealism that we can never live up to or oppressive legalism that absolutely crushes us. But if we understand that this is a picture of who we are becoming as the gospel takes root, as God's kingdom reign invades our own lives, we will be encouraged and inspired by what God is at work doing in us individually and corporately as a community. Second, I wanted to make a couple observations about some structural things, some things we recognize in the sermon, uh, in the Beatitudes. Uh, the first Beatitude, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you notice verse 10, the final Beatitude, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The promises 
for both the first beatitude and the last beatitude is the same promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It forms a sandwich, if you will. The, the technical word is inclusio. But, but the idea is that that whole, everything that comes in between is governed by that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, every other statement through the Beatitudes, this is true. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That promise runs through the whole set of Beatitudes. And what that also means is, is that, that all of those other promises in each of the other Beatitudes is an aspect of what it means to uh, receive the kingdom, to be comforted, to be uh, filled, to be called children of God. To, all of those other promises are elements of what it means to, be, uh, to receive the kingdom of heaven. I want to draw your attention to another thing. This is less of an issue in English, but in uh, the original in Greek, the, the order of words is used for emphasis. And so here we don't read, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. We read, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and that's the order of those pronouns throughout the Beatitudes. Theirs, they will be comforted, they will be filled, they will be called children of God. There is this emphasis on their, theirs. And, and what that means is that Jesus is saying that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, theirs and only theirs. They will be comforted, them and only them. In, in other words, Jesus is saying to receive these promises... There, there is no other way. There's no alternative way of attaining the promised blessings. It's only beatitude people. It's only people shaped by these characteristics. Only those in whom the gospel has taken root who will receive the kingdom of heaven, who will be comforted, who will be all children of God, who will receive mercy, who, who will see God. All of these promises. Third, and this is really key. Let's look at the qualities or the characteristics, the virtue that Jesus uh, shares here, that he speaks of. Jesus is not here describing a variety of different virtues or characteristics or qualities of which his followers will have one or maybe two. He's not saying that, that some Will have, some will be poor in spirit, while others will mourn, others will be meek, others will hunger and thirst for righteousness, others will be uh, merciful, others will be pure in heart, others will be peacemakers, others will be persecuted. He's not listing off, hey, here's some virtues, and my people collectively will have these, one of them. These are eight different qualities, eight different virtues of the same person that Jesus is describing. In other words, Jesus is describing a person in whom 
the gospel has taken root. He, he is saying when God's uh, reign, his inbreaking kingdom breaks into a person's life, when they believe the gospel, that person is transformed, and these are the characteristics, these are the qualities that they will grow to exhibit. All of them. In other words, if we are in Christ, God desires, Jesus' desire is that all of us would exhibit all of these qualities. This is not eight different individuals. This is not about you and I. Hey, I I got this one, so I'm good. No, God wants to produce all of these in all of us. And and all of these beatitudes uh, work together. We can interpret them by looking at the others, the other seven. They are eight interrelated, inseparable qualities that go together. And the order is of significance. And as we walk through each of them over the coming weeks, we will see that. And they they begin with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand that they come to God with empty hands. That they come not deserving anything from God other than judgment. That that we come spiritually bankrupt. When you understand your utter complete need for God's mercy and grace, then theirs is the kingdom of God. That's the beginning point. We come knowing that we need his mercy. We come knowing we need his grace. And then we recognize our sin and we mourn. Our sin and the sin and the brokenness of the world and rebellion against God. And we weep. And Jesus promises that we will be comforted. And when we recognize our need and we mourn for our sin, we, we become meek. Not arrogant and proud and boisterous, but meek, gentle people. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Not the powerful, not the strong, but those who knew, know their need. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we recognize those other things, we come. And notice he doesn't say, blessed are the righteous. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who understand that they are far from where they're supposed to be, but they long for that. They will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. When we recognize both our need for God's mercy and his abundant mercy, we become men and women who are merciful. And then we read, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are you when you desire, as God works in you, you desire one thing, and that is God. And the promise is that we will see him. How amazing is that? And then seventh, blessed are the peacemakers. As those who have received God's mercy and grace, as those who have wept over the brokenness in our own lives and the world around us, those who have become meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who have hearts full of mercy, who who desire God, then we seek to bring peace in this world. We charge out into the midst of the chaos, announcing the peace of the Prince of Peace. And then, because the world doesn't want that, we find ourselves crushed. Blessed are those who are persecuted. There is a logic to these. They work together. They help us understand each of them. 
This is who Jesus wants to shape us to be. This is what it looks like when the gospel takes fruit, when God's kingdom reign breaks into our lives. He shapes us to be beatitude people. He transforms us. Fourth, let's turn our attention to the word with which it all begins. Blessed are. We encounter many beatitudes, blessed are statements throughout Scripture. Psalm 1, blessed are those. Jesus, God says to us, don't walk in step with the wicked, who don't stand in the way of sinners, who don't sit in the seat of mockers. There God shows us two ways, the, the way of rebellion against him and, and the way, his way of submitting to his word, meditating on his word, following him. He, here we come to that in the New Testament. Jesus offers these eight beatitudes, these eight blessed are statements. But what exactly does that mean when he says blessed are? The, the Greek word here is a word makarios. Maybe you've heard of it before. Uh, it is often translated happy, and it can be translated happy, but, but happy is too weak, and it misses something of great importance. See, happy in English, in our use of the word, is tied to what's going on in our experience, tied to what's happening, it, and it puts the emphasis in the wrong place. Happiness is about what I'm feeling, what you're feeling. With the word makarios, blessed, it, it's not... It's not focused on what you and I feel. It's Rather, it turns on how God feels about us, about how God feels about our circumstances, about our situation. My feelings, your feelings, are not the point of this word. When Jesus say, says, blessed are, he, he's sharing God's perspective of your life and my life when the gospel has taken root and he is transforming us as his people, that we are citizens of his inbreaking kingdom living in the midst of this broken world, God looks at us and says, you are blessed. It's his perspective. Various scholars and theologians have attempted to explain this with different words. And, and, and one attempt has been to say, uh, approved. You're approved. Blessed, blessed are you approved. I, I, I don't love that one because it seems to point to what we somehow do. But that's one attempt. Another attempt is, is to use the word fortunate. Fortunate are you, poor in spirit. That's a little better. You're fortunate. That's God's perspective. Fortunate. A another word is, is congratulations. This is an expression. Herb Kopp, in fact, he, he writes this. Jesus is shouting congratulations to his followers because of a new reality present in their lives. They are enriched Immersed in God's goodness, filled to overflowing with God's grace. Congratulations! This is God's announcement of how he feels about us as he looks at us, those whom he has redeemed, those in whom the gospel is taking root and growing, those in whom his kingdom reign is at work. My favorite is that of Karl Barth, the German theologian. He said, the best way to capture Makarios is this. You lucky bums! You lucky bums, you poor in spirit. You lucky bums, you who mourn, for you will be comfort, comforted. You lucky bums, you who are meek, for you inherit the earth. And on he goes. Daryl Johnson says, it's, we could say it's God's word of in alignment. You're, you're lined up right. 
Think of your car when your, your alignment's off and your, your tires, maybe it's even shaking. I remember years ago, I was 16. I did a lot of things when I was 16 that my sons aren't here to hear about now. But I remember driving like, a, anyways, I just pray they never drive like I did. I, I, on a wet road, hit a curb with my dad's car and I wrecked the wheel and the alignment, something fierce. You know, you know and the, the, the car just shimmies. Things are out of alignment. Here, here, this is God's announcement of in alignment. Things are right. Or we could use the word in sync. That, that we are synchronized. That, that, that things are the way they're supposed to be. This is God's perspective. This is how God feels about us as he looks at our lives as men and women, boys and girls, teenagers, wherever age you are, when you have repented and believed the good news that in Jesus' coming, a light is shining, God's kingdom is breaking in, that he is at work right now setting things right, transforming the world and transforming our lives. He is shaping our character. He will shape our behavior, our ambitions. When we believe this, God looks at us and he pronounces a word of blessing. You are blessed. We, we might experience tears. We might experience difficulty and challenge. We might, we might not feel blessed, but we are blessed. Because the one who knows far better than us, the one who sees the beginning and the end, the one in whose hands we rest, looks and he sees us loved and redeemed and secure. And he pronounces that we are blessed. Fifth and finally, I want to say this, that these qualities that Jesus blesses, these virtues, these characteristics, are not natural human qualities. None of us can produce these qualities by our own attempts. None of us are born with these. Some of us might read through this list and think, oh, what hope do I have? I'm not very meek. Someone else has a meek temperament and they got an advantage over me. I've been told I'm sometimes a little bit aggressive, abrasive even. What chance do I have? Well, I want to say to you that these are not natural human qualities. None of us are born with these. The qualities that people may have are not these qualities. These are characteristics. These are virtues that God grows in us, that God produces in us when we repent and believe. And so, so I, I can't say, hey, I, I can't be meek or I can't do... No, God produces these in us. God shapes us to exhibit these characteristics. When we submit to the good news, what we need to understand is that Jesus, his, his earthly ministry is just beginning. He goes throughout Galilee calling people to repent and to believe the good news of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. Jesus did not, hear this please, Jesus did not walk around Palestine looking for beatitude people. Hey, you, you can join me. Hey, you, you've got the right quality, come. That's not what happened. Jesus did not come looking for people who exhibited these, the people who had these naturally. No, not at all. 
Jesus came proclaiming good news, and when the good news takes root, it begins to transform us so that all of us can grow and exhibit all of these qualities because these are the qualities that happen when we believe the good news, when God's kingdom reign breaks in. And one of the things that we will face and we will wrestle with and we will come up against over and over and over again in the coming months as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount are issues around the gospel and law. That is what God tells us he has done in Christ and what God calls us to do in obedience. What we need to understand is the order of those things. See, when we believe the good news, when we believe the gospel that in Christ we are forgiven, in Christ we are washed and cleansed, in Christ we are clothed with his righteousness, we are adopted as sons and daughters, we belong to him, we are accepted and loved and secure, that then we are called to obey, to live in a way that is congruent with that new reality. If we say, if you find yourself saying, hey, I believe the good news, I'm forgiven, I'm good, now I can go do my own thing, I want to challenge you to look at the gospel again and ask yourself if you really believe it. Because if we simply believe the gospel and think we can go do whatever we want, we've missed something. See, Christ is restoring us to right relationship with him and to be who we were created to be. And so that's a life of obedience. A life of being conformed into his image. We when we disobey, we are actually becoming less than human. We are created to be women and men who look like Jesus. And so through obedience, we grow in that. Now here's what we need to understand. That, that the gospel is, is what God has done in Christ. That in him we're saved. In him we are forgiven. In him we are filled with his spirit. His law, if you will, his word, shows us what it looks like for us to live as he desires. So imagine God's instruction, many of the things that we're going to see through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as, a, as a set of tracks, train tracks. Not one of us can make our way down those tracks by our own striving. We can't do it. But when we believe the gospel, when we believe Jesus, when we embrace our new identity that we are forgiven, that we are purified, that we are clothed as righteousness, that we are indwelt by His Spirit, that we have been set free from sin. We're no longer slaves to, to sin. We're slaves of, to righteousness. Then by the power of the Spirit in us, through His transforming work, He helps us grow in holiness and obedience. So what we need to understand when we come to the Sermon on the Mount is that this is not about becoming a Christian. In fact, Martin Luther says, Christ is saying nothing in this sermon about how we become Christians, but only about how the works and fruit that no one can do unless he is already a Christian and in a state of grace. That is, apart from Christ, we cannot produce these qualities. Apart from Christ, we cannot obey Christ. But in Christ, through Christ, when we're regenerate, when, when the Spirit is taking up residence in us, when we've experienced new birth, this is what God is at work in us doing, producing new character producing new behavior, producing new ambitions. Jesus didn't go around looking for men and women, young and old, boys and girls, teenagers, who were beatitude people. He came pronouncing good news, calling people to repent and to believe. And when we do that, he does this in us. There is, if you look at the text, there's no therefore in it. He doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit, Therefore, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
He doesn't say, blessed are those who mourn, therefore they will be comforted. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they, they will be comforted. There's no therefore. All of these are not things that I produce by my own striving, by my own efforts, by my own power. These are produced in me by the indwelling Spirit of God as I repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. Now, we're not simply passive. We are called continually to repent and to believe, to turn from sin to God and to believe the good news. And that is, in fact, part of Christian discipleship. It's daily, moment by moment, we repent every time we realize, every time God says, hey, that's not what I want for you, we repent. We say, uh, forgive me, and we turn back to God, and we seek to obey God. We believe the good news that we are free from sin, that we have been created. We, we believe that there is joy in obedience. We repent and believe. We repent and believe. We repent and believe. That's the Christian life of discipleship. We believe our new identity. We believe what God says. We allow him to transform our thinking. The Sermon on the Mount is the ethics of the inbreaking kingdom, what life looks like in a broken world when his kingdom of wholeness breaks in and take hold, takes hold of our hearts. Apart from that context, apart from the good news of what God is doing through Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, including the Beatitudes, will be frustrating idealism, something we can never live up to, or oppressive legalism, something that will absolutely crush us. But when we get the good news, when we believe the good news that in Christ God is broken into this world, we will be encouraged, we will be inspired, we will be excited about what God is doing in us, about who God is shaping us to be, about the kind of character He wants to produce in you and me. I don't know about you, but as I've been walking into this series, I've been so blessed and encouraged and excited about what God wants to say to us, about what he wants to do in us, that he would inspire us through his word with what he's doing. The Beatitudes describe, they, they paint a picture for us of, of what will increasingly be true of you and me as the gospel takes hold of us. The power of God that saves us is also the power of God that transforms us. Remember my experience of being severely directionally challenged in Abbotsford? My thinking was skewed for years. And I still need to remind myself, oh yeah, Christine's right. This is north-south. That's not the only instance where she's right. Don't want to give that impression. My thinking was skewed and needs to be corrected. Brothers and sisters, we have heard so many lies but what is true, but what is possible. And I want us to hear what Jesus wants for us. Jesus wants to shape you and to shape me to be people who reflect this character, that we would be beatitude people, that we would be transformed by the good news transformed by what he is doing, that we would be in sync with what is true, with who we were created to be, with who he is creating us to be. 
So I want to leave you with a few questions from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He asks this. Are we manifesting these qualities in our daily lives? Is it our ambition to do so? Do we see that this is what we were meant to be? Brothers and sisters, Jesus wants to transform us. He wants to shape our thinking, our hearts, our lives, that we would be in sync with Him. That we would be in sync with all that it means that His kingdom is breaking in, is broken into this world. That He is present now in us, with us, at work. To shape us, to transform us for His glory and our joy. And as those who are in Him, He pronounces that word of blessing, you lucky bums. This is what's true. This is what I'm doing in you. You are blessed. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for this marvelous picture of what you are at work doing in us. Jesus, I pray that every one of us would bow before you that we would come humbly and invite you, Jesus, to work, to shape, to transform. Lord, that where our thinking is skewed, where, where you need to, to just challenge us and change our thinking, our understanding, we invite you to come do that, Holy Spirit. Shape us to be your beatitude people, in sync with you and with your kingdom. Amen.